Jake, I think there's a breeze in here. Like a draft. Seize the day, boys. I'm hearing something strange. Seize the day. What is up, my nerds? Welcome inside Pop Culture with Fanboy and Know-It-All. I'm your boy, Jake Roberson. I'm your man, <laughs> Paul Acey. Welcome back inside our crazy brains. If my voice sounds funny, I just want to forewarn you, I am recording this episode with a gaping wound in the back of my mouth. Oh, no. Yeah. I, so did you have your wisdom teeth pulled? Is I didn't. That, I did not. You just have a gaping wound. I do. You were shot in the back of the mouth. Oh, well, jeez. <laughs> we went where, dark. Where do you think that is? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> no, I was, okay, never mind. You just got a casual bullet wound in the back of your mouth. Thanks for showing up for the recording, Jake. Uh, no, it's much less heroic than taking a bullet to the back of the mouth. <laughs> I don't actually, but I don't really see very many heroic ways to no. take a bullet to the back of the mouth. Anyway, we're anyway. gonna get away from that. Get away from that. Maybe it was like a circus stunt. No, I, uh, you know, Clenching dentist. The... It was a dentist. Well, but as all wounds in the back of the mouth should be. Right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. No, um, my my dentist. I've had this. I've had this tissue, this flap of tissue, grow Ooh. over my back left molar over the last I don't know year ish. So it's like a hood. Sort of like a hood for my back left molar. Kind of cool. little yeah. cap there. Yeah. It doesn't hurt. I don't bite down on it. Like, there's never been any issue with it other than I've got to make sure I brush really well underneath it. Lift it up. Yeah. You know, lift it up. Get some stuff out of there. The dentist noticed it at my last visit. My, you know, because you're supposed to go to the dentist a lot, I guess. <laughs> uh, Every six months, they tell me. So, yeah, there's some data. Yeah. Uh, and he, he sees it. And he says, is that bothering you? I say, no. He's like, well, you know, if you want, we can remove it. It's pretty quick and easy. And looked it up. Oh, and that, your insurance covers most of that, so it'll be pretty cheap. And I, and he's like, and it can help you prevent, you know, even if you're brushing under there, maybe some food particles stay there on the underside he just and give you know. cavities. Yeah. He's like, all right, yeah, that sounds like a good hygienic thing to do. Let's go ahead and get it out of there. So fast forward a couple of weeks. And uh, I go into the dentist to get this taken care of. And it really feels like he he numbs it up. But then with how long he's in there and how much sawing is happening Ooh, and, like, uh, you know, tweezing and, like, oh, ripping things out of my mouth, I'm like, this doesn't feel oh, quick and easy. This is going to be our lowest rated podcast <laughs> ever. And uh, so then he finishes and he's like, you know, it might feel like you've got a, a skin knee in the back <laughs> of your throat. You know when the numbing which is an unpleasant off. thing. I mean, I'm like, yeah, that sounds unpleasant to begin with. It's like a sore throat. That sounds right. bad, right? Um, but then the numbing, I get, I go home and the numbing's still in effect, and I'm like, oh, I feel all right. I feel all right. Uh, and then about you know an hour after getting out of yeah. dentist's office and the numbing wears off, I'm like, turn to my wife and say, hey, crazy question. Last night, did you happen to hit me in the side of the head? <laughs> With a two by four, because I've got this headache and I can't open my mouth. Like, oh, and, man. And my throat feels like somebody sawed off, like, 
you know, yeah. 10 layers of throat. Oh. So I can't swallow. I didn't eat or drink the entire day. Oh. Like had a splitting headache, was like basically bedridden like a baby. Oh. You know, and... Uh, and so I'm How did your a, kids deal with I'm it? I'm just that a couple they, of days out of were that. They, were they merciful to you? You know, my wife, uh, we talked about, I've had a lot of physical injuries. Recently. You really back have. injury, yeah. and I talked about how great Every my wife is. Every single time we come in. Are you sure you're not actually 50? I, I might be 50. I might be 50. So my wife, you know, did a good job. Like, And my kids are very, they're reaching an age where they're, they're at this great age. Yeah. Where they're old enough to understand that I'm hurting right. and to be empathetic and like, you know, ask me questions about how I'm doing. Uh, young enough to like still care about me. <laughs> you know, <laughs> to not be cynical to. and be like, whatever, Dad's old. Like, Cowboy up, Jake. Yeah. Cowboy up, Dad. So there you go. That's why my voice might sound a little wow. funny today. No, that's a really unusual thing, actually. I mean, I mean, the, the whole idea of like a flap of skin growing over your teeth—it yeah. feels. Both really strange and a little bit gross, but kind of cool all at the same way. Yeah, so moral of the story is, if this happens to you... Never get it cut off. Don't get it cut off. Just, just let br- it grow. Just brush under it and yeah, see it, how far it it'll grow. It could grow, yeah. It might, it might just grow over your entire lower jaw, yeah. and then you would have that nice protection there, and you could just lift it up when you're eating or something. Or maybe right. you could install like some sort of retractable thing. Yeah, or like I bet, I bet since it's like, like stretchy tissue, you could kind of stretch it down over over your teeth, you know, and tuck it under your lip when you want to eat. So it oh, is. Yeah. It sort of has that retractable nature yeah. to it. Yeah, and just sort of a nice awning. Reinstall it so that you know you don't accidentally bite your tongue or your cheek in random moments. Exactly. This, you know what? The more I think about it. You were well. I was a fool. Maybe this is. It could be a little like uh, you know how you trim off flowers. You know, I don't do that often. But so continue. My mom always told me, you know, you gotta pluck off the flowers so that they'll grow more. Maybe Mm. this is sort of the same sort of thing where it was plucked off and now it'll just grow more. I always heard that about like facial hair. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I think that was just like a parent's, like an an old mom's tale. To get you to shave when you had a terrible like patch of facial hair, yeah. like you know, if you shave it, yeah. it'll grow back faster next time. So I totally did that a lot in high school. I I was shaving the heck out of my face, hoping that. Hair and look grow. where you are now. And look at my my beard now is like a good five inches long. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's great. It could probably use a little. No, I'm not going to say it. Um, speaking of beards, no, I don't know. <laughs> There, we, no, sort of, we sort of talked ourselves into a corner here. Speaking of beards and teeth, yeah, beards I've got no teeth. segue. I've got no segue. <laughs> no, this is a movie. Here's here's your segue. Jim. We're going to be talking about a movie. Speaking today. of teeth, this is a movie that has teeth. Heyo! It has a little bit of bite to it. It's one of the all-time classics of Robin Williams' whole cinematic um, catalog. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was one of my favorite movies when I first saw it when it came out. Now, Jake, you were all of three months old when this came out. No, I was all of six months gestation in my mother's womb oh. when this came out. Oh, that's right. Okay. <laughs> okay, Way so go, you weren't Paul. watching this at all. I didn't, not watching I didn't this at all. see this. Perhaps, you know what, I bet, I bet my parents maybe rented this when I was a newborn and they had a date night in. Yeah. You know, they got it from the library. And in the college library, and had a date night in while 
they were new parents, tried to make themselves feel normal again. Yeah, yeah. So you you developed an appreciation for Walt Whitman right away. We're, we're right talking, away. of course, I don't think we've mentioned the movie. It's actually Dead Poets <laughs> Society. Yeah, that's the topic of today's podcast. We're doing, well, I mean, we've got two topics today. Right, we're talking exactly. Dead Poets Society because that was on my backlist, Hall of Shame. Mm-hmm. And inspired by Dead Poets Society, we're doing a we're doing like a, a rank geeks that's really more like a rank book nerds. Yes. And that we're, well, we're going to talk about our top three authors that have inspired us. Yes. Or writers. Writers, yeah. authors, you know. Yeah, yeah. We're playing no, around with that. Because we both read some. We do. You actually read more than I do. I probably do. It's a little alarming. But, uh, yeah, we're going to go into our favorite authors because we've got a lot of favorite authors. And, man, I tell you what, this was one of the hardest things that I've actually had to do for this podcast. So. I Yeah, you know, that was what I was going to say to you, Paul, because we had talked about a couple other ideas for what we could rank right. for this episode. And and Paul texted me and he's like, "Hey, I'm not gonna have time to do the one that we picked. <laughs> Can we do the like writers who have inspired us?" And I'm sitting there trying to make up my list of writers who have inspired me and trying to make the top list. It was not hard to come up with a overall list, right? right. But that top list, that was tough. Yeah, it really was, and and we'll get into that, and I'll whine more about it later. But but first, I really want to hear. This is you know the backlist hall of shame is is the movies that we really should have watched before now, but we haven't, and so this is our way of forcing each other to watch the movies that are sort of lacking from our our personal watch list, and uh, and Jake, I picked uh, Dead Poet Society for you because it was one of the formative movies when we talk about inspirational authors. This was actually a movie that inspired me in ways that I'll talk about later. Jake, what did you think? Well, Paul, I'd love to tell you what I think, but let's walk on over to the backlist Hall of Shame <laughs> so we can do this right. I'm sorry. Sorry. <laughs> Paul, thanks for accompanying me over to the Backlist <laughs> Hall of Shame. <laughs> the view's great from here. All the sorrow of sorrow of regret, you know. Yes. And uh, so, yeah. What did I think about? Let me. I'm sorry. The walk was so long. I forgot your question. Yeah. No. I was going to ask you what. Well, first we should probably give like unpack a little bit about the movie. Right? You know what? Before we even unpack it, guys, do we need to walk somewhere else now? Yeah. No, we're in the right place. We're okay. in the right place. But for those of you that have walked with us. Um, this I think goes without saying, but we're going to talk spoilers. Oh, yeah. this movie's thirty years old. Hopefully, you've already seen it. But if you didn't get a chance to watch it with us or have seen it before, and you don't want the spoilers, yeah, th- we're going to have to go spoil watch it stuff. real quick for sure. It's on Netflix streaming, um, and then come back and listen. Correct. So now to unpack. Unpack for those for those of you who have seen it or don't care about spoilers. But have forgotten kind of what's going on here. Yeah, well, so essentially this this movie takes place in this uh, very ritzy, very snooty... Hold on, can you stand a little bit to the left? You're in the wrong spot of this. <laughs> I'm in the, the wrong spot. Okay, where's the tape mark? Just shuffle Hold on. a little bit, a little bit, a little bit. All right, go ahead. Okay. This place, this takes place where? <sighs> yeah, the acoustics <laughs> are much better here. Yeah, I see? can tell. Okay, so 
Yeah, the, the movie takes place at Welton, which is this very snooty preparatory academy. Uh-huh. These are high school boys who are getting prepped to go into college, and mostly Ivy League colleges, 75% of the people who graduate here. So you have a lot of really rich kids with a lot of really controlling parents, and it's really the story of... It's a recipe for a good time. It's a recipe for a good time. It really did look like one of my nightmares, actually. <laughs> It looked like it looked like yeah, it just was terrible. I never liked summer camp. It looked like four years of summer camp with lots and lots of homework. Yeah, and so, nine months long instead of three. Oh, just horrible. And in 1959 instead of yeah. the 1980s. But there was a picturesque charm to it too. And these kids, obviously, they they know each other. They like each other. We are introduced to two primary characters: Neil, who is clearly one of the one of the kings of the block here at, at Welton, uh, who is rooming now with this young upstart named Todd, who has a very famous brother who goes there. Who went? Um, who went there? And uh, they go through their classes, but there's also another newcomer here um, by the name of Mr. Keating. He is the new English teacher. He's played by Robin Williams, and he has some very unique ideas about teaching these kids English, especially poetry, that doesn't necessarily jive with the, uh, the tone of this 1959 school environment. Yeah, I don't know what the, the you know... The school was thinking, like, hiring Robin Williams. <laughs> it seems like... You'd yeah. think that would come out in the process. <laughs> Did you not watch Mork and Mindy? Did you not know what Have you were Have you not seen, you know, Good Morning Vietnam or Patch yeah. Adams or Aladdin? Come on. Yeah. Why would you hire this guy? <laughs> of course, in 1959, none of that stuff existed. None of that existed, but... and he went by a different name. Exactly. So, time exactly. travel. But... <laughs> <laughs> yes, there were there were clearly going to be some issues right from the right from the get go. But in all seriousness, in all seriousness, I it's funny that I haven't seen this movie already. Being as voracious as a reader as I was as a kid, and I went through a strong Robin Williams phase in high school where I listened to like all of his stand up and I watched Good Morning Vietnam and I watched Patch Adams and I watched other ones that I can't think of at the moment. Um, Patch Adams. Yeah, that's one that you remember. That's interesting. Okay. Well, it, that one sticks out to me because that, that might have been, oh, you know, Hook. Outside of Hook, yeah. Pat Adams might be have been the first Robin Williams movie that I ever watched. Because my mom got it thinking, oh, it's about a doctor. My dad's a doctor. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And Robin Williams is funny. They like kind of the Robin Williams antics. You know, you know Mrs. Doubtfire, all that kind of stuff. Uh, not realizing that my dad didn't really care for, like, the real life version of Patch Adams that the story was based on, <laughs> and so like oh, uh, wasn't wasn't I love the movie though, <laughs> my poor dad. He, yeah. you know. So there you go, um, but I never got around to this one, and so but I have always appreciated Robin Williams when he gets a little bit more serious. Yeah, yeah. even even if there's still some humor to it when he he's he's. A, He's a fun actor to watch. He's very charismatic. He's incredibly charismatic. He is he of course is in his element when he's doing his comedy because no one is as manic and as crazy and as funny as Robin Williams is when he is on. But honestly, when he sinks himself into some of these serious roles, he's he's really good. Yeah. I mean, he's really good and incredibly watchable and he has this this um 
pathos to him that I think is is really charming on screen in its own dark way. You know, he sort of has a he sort of has this like humility to him when he takes on this these serious roles where mm. he knows he's funny and there's always a twinkle in his eye that I think I feel like you can never get rid of right. with him. Even even when I'm remembering names of other ones I've seen with him, like Jacob the Liar, another very serious film. Mm. But he's always got this twinkle in his eye. And so even when he's serious, there's it's almost like there's this part of you that and and I don't know how it doesn't take you out of more of his movies where mm. he's almost like, I'm in on this joke. Like, yeah, exactly. You know, he's almost bashful in a way, like as he's hiding his humor to be like, do you like me when I'm serious? <laughs> but it works. Like it yeah. totally works. It's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. I, one of the other movies on your backlist, all of shame that we almost did today was uh, Goodwill Hunting. And yeah. he, there he totally disappears. Um, he's not funny. I don't think at all. Yeah. Um, he's a remarkable actor. And I think that, honestly, honestly, Jake, watching this over again, I think this is one of his best roles. Yeah. Would you agree? Uh, out of all the stuff I've seen, I have to I have to say it might be the role I've enjoyed him in the most. Mm, interesting. Like, I, I, it's it's been a while since I've seen some of his other ones, like, to comment specifically on, is this his best role? And I still haven't seen Goodwill Hunting, which I know right. a lot of people would put up there. Right. Um, and uh, also The Fisher King. I haven't seen that one. Oh, my goodness! That's also on my backlist. So, oh, yeah. again, there was a couple of these, like, classic Robin Williams that I didn't get to. It's like, I watched Jack. I watched Patch Adams. I watched Hook. I watched Seems Good like Morning Vietnam. I watched all the bad <laughs> for whatever reason. Probably Toys. because outside of Good Morning Vietnam, which I don't know why randomly I saw that one, I saw all the ones that, like, my parents would have let me watch, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, I can understand that. You know, that. Mrs. Yeah. Doubtfire and all these, like, cleaner ones. Right, right, um, right. So anyways, uh, but out of all the movies I've watched him in so far, this was the role where I was like, I just love this guy. Yeah. Like, I love he, – he didn't quite get to Gregory Peck no, to no. Kill a Mockingbird level where you're just like, this is my new dad. Sorry, dad. <laughs> Sorry, real father. Just <laughs> Push kidding. him aside. I'm, I'm, with, I'm with Gregory now. <laughs> just kidding, dad. You know, that's not true. Uh, but I love this role mm-hmm. for Robin Williams. Like, this was a lot of fun. And yeah. I have to say, this movie – I figured I figured I would appreciate it more than I liked it. Right. And I really enjoyed it overall. That's interesting. I felt like even though I was never a teenage boy in the 1950s. <laughs> crazy. <laughs> crazy. Even though I was never a teenage boy in any part of the 1900s. <laughs> the 20th <laughs> oh century. Oh <laughs> my goodness. Thank you very much for that, Jake. <laughs> uh, I felt like this really captured the enthusiasm and the passion and the goofiness and the dreaming and just sort of the energy and charisma of teenage life. Yeah. Like in the midst of dealing with your parents controlling you and the disappointments and the frustrations with that and not knowing what you're going to do with the rest of your life, just this this restless energy yeah um was so well captured in this movie Mm -hmm. that even in serious moments they found ways to capture sort of the the youthful naivety that gives us that energy as teenagers yeah and in and the director and the cast really infuse that into this movie in some ways that literally as i'm watching it i'm just like they nailed it yeah they stinking nailed it yeah no i think that it was let me let me go back to when I first watched this yeah, yeah. because I think that that when 
everything that you say, I think, is absolutely true. I think that when you look at the the young characters that we see, and man, are they young. They feel young. You see Ethan Hawke here, who looks like he's about 12. <laughs> right. You know, these these are young, young kids. And, and they do have sort of, you can tell this is like a, almost a classic coming-of-age movie in a way, where you have them still very much tied to their parents, still wanting to very much please their parents. But they're starting to wonder what else is out there. And here comes this this dynamo of a teacher, Robin Williams, to show them how much more there is to life than maybe the direction their parents are pointing them. And you do have sort of that restless energy. You have that desire to, to as they say in the movie, suck the marrow out of life. And you have just sort of this this sense of youth and the boundless possibilities that that brings. And so it becomes really, really powerful in that sense. I saw this movie, actually, when I was in college. So a little bit older than these guys, but not much. Very close. Yeah. And I was diving into – I'm an English major. And originally I was going to have, be an English major with an emphasis on writing, right? Because it's the only thing I can really do. This was the year that I switched my major from a writing emphasis to a literature emphasis <laughs> because – in part because I was starting to really appreciate the the language that you heard. I was right in the middle of a huge Dickens class that was incredibly influential for me when I saw this movie. And so um, it, it really resonated with me, just the power of language and these beautiful poems that were, you know, just coursing off these these tongues. And it was just, it was wonderful. It, it was, for a literary geek like me, for a literature geek like me, it was like catnip. It was like crack. Oh, yeah. You go to this thing and you think, that is me. This is what language is all about. This is what literature is all about. You went out and bought a hood and <laughs> ran into the caves of I small would've. town Nebraska. I totally would have in small town Nebraska because <laughs> I wanted to start a Dead Poet Society right after that movie because I thought, this is what it's all about. This yeah, I mean, is so cool. The school you were at, Hastings, basically looked exactly like looked Houghton's exactly Academy. like. Yeah, exactly. It, it was exactly Weldon. And it was just, it was so charming and so romantic, I can say. Because, they're, I mean, they're talking about these romantic poets, right? Right in the romantic period where it's all about emotion and, and this energy and this exuberance and and just feeling every little prick and and scrape of life in a sense. And and so that was where I was when I saw this movie. And so it really resonated with me. Yeah. Watching it now as a 49-year-old, it was interesting how much just the perspective of, you know, 29 years is made. <laughs> <laughs> you know, because I really appreciated it and I still saw all that. You look at Robin Williams and one of my favorite speeches in it is is you know when he's has the kids all huddled up and he says, you know, engineering, science, being a doctor, these are all noble pursuits and they are necessary for life, but poetry is what what makes life worth living. And I think that that was just it was really powerful. At the same time, I sort of resonated with some of the stodgy, (laughs) stick-in-the-mud adults where you're sort of saying, you know what? You know, there is a place for practicality within all this dreaming. All right. There's there's a time, and you see some of the negative influences within this movie about, about sometimes the most unsympathetic characters can be kind of right. 
when you're talking about Robin Williams and, and talking about how he does all this stuff and you love him and the kids love him and he's saying some wonderful things, there is one character and he's completely unsympathetic and he says, you know, kids at this age are really impressionable. And you do sort of think back to those teenage years, how you can take all those great messages and then turn them into maybe an unproductive, damaging, even self-destructing way. You can see how that happens. Right, which, spoiler spoiler alert, since we already gave you It happens. Ends up happening when Robert Sean Leonard's character, Mm -hmm. Neil, probably the main character. The main character. Outside of Robin Williams and... I mean, yeah, he's 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 kind of he's what the camera focuses the, on the most. He's the focal he's, point. Yeah. Ethan Hawke is just sort of this quiet, really, mousy character. Yeah, it's funny because Ethan Hawke has become more famous since then right. than Robert Sean Leonard. So I I've think, never seen Robert Sean Leonard in a movie since, actually. Yeah, and humorously, my aside is that I had actually already seen Robert Sean Leonard. In another movie that he did after Dead Poets Society. Remember how I was talking about how I yeah. like read Shakespeare yeah, and yeah, yeah, yeah. all that kind of stuff? Robert Sean Leonard was in Much Ado About Nothing with Denzel and Emma Thompson and really? Kenneth Branagh and Keanu Reeves oh, and Kate Beckinsale that. and Michael Keaton. Like it's like an all star cast. Wow. But he played he was in he was in that and um oh gosh, what was the name of his character? Uh, the hero is the girl in Much Ado About Nothing. Come on, English major. Oh, I have no idea. Come on, tell me who, I, I, who's I was, hero's I love interest. I studied the, the tragedies of Shakespeare, not the comedies. Oh, that's the worst. The, the comedies are the best. <laughs> they are the best. Um, My wife would agree with you. Gosh, this She's is going to kill me. She's a huge Shakespeare note. This is going to kill me. I'm looking it up right now. Claudio. Okay. He played Claudio. So Much Ado About Nothing, Claudio and Hero in Love, but... Yeah, they try. Someone's conspiring to break them up and all that kind of fun stuff. I hated him as Claudio. When, I had no idea who he was as an actor, but whenever I watched this as a middle schooler, I, yeah, uh, I was like, "This wuss, worst." <laughs> and uh, so seeing that he was in this, I was like, "Oh gosh!" And he's younger, and he looks even wussier. Like, <laughs> this is gonna that that immediately like when i realized he was in it and was going to be the focal point i was like this is going to be bad but he was fantastic mm. and he 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 yeah. nailed it so you know what robert sean i'm sorry for uh for giving you <laughs> for giving you flack too soon but he, you know the spoiler is he follows he's seizing the day he restarts the dead poets society that you know robin williams slash john keating had started on his time at the academy his, he decides he wants to join the tryout for the play, and he gets the lead role. He's doing Shakespeare. Oh, yeah. And he's doing it under his dad's nose, but then yeah. his dad finds out. And, and it's a really, it's, really bad it scene. It doesn't go well, oh. and his dad shows up at the play and takes him home. And simultaneously, this was what probably what I – when I realized how much I was enjoying the movie and like where I was like kind of realizing the flaws right. or what I saw as flaws in the right. movie is in this moment mm-hmm. where Robert Sean Leonard, you know, he's gone off the rails. He's been on his ra- way to being a doctor, something very practical. His dad, you know, yeah. very controlling. A, a path set by his dad. Yeah. Kurtwood Smith is the worst, you know. 
he is he never gets to play a good character, does he? He's, he's just always going to be a jerk. He's right? the he's the dad from that '70s show. In yeah, case yeah. you're wondering, the bald guy, and he is just he is one of the worst villains. If we had a list, a top five list of worst villains, he might make this for this movie. Actually, yeah. well, we did do villains, but he didn't put them on there. Oh, so. yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, that falls that that rings empty in my ears. Next one, but uh, <laughs> but he comes to the play and and his son does great, but he is unmoved and takes him home and tells him, "I'm unenrolling you from this school. I'm sending you to military school." And the young, passionate, you know, doctor to be who is now wanted, you know, become an artist, shoots himself, and you can tell. Like that, it's building there. Once after, like yeah. as as that as after they've had their conversation and everything just goes to music. Oh yeah, and you're, you're like he's gonna he's gonna as you realize that he's gonna kill himself and he's unwrapping the gun. I'm just sitting there watching this by myself in bed in pain, <laughs> headphones on, and I'm just like out loud. I'm like no 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 no, and I realize like boy do I care about. Yeah. These characters, am I wrapped up in the story emotionally? I'm verbally out loud, like by myself. <laughs> no, 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 don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. Uh, and then upon reflection, and upon reflection, I think it's probably what, why, one of the weaknesses of this movie, in that I think ultimately, as inspiring as this movie is, as vibrant as it is in parts, it ends up ringing kind of empty and hollow to me. Mm-hmm. Now, how so? Because I don't think it actually provides much substance. Mm-hmm. Like if, because this idea that poetry, like to what you said, I see the the idea of poetry is what gives life meaning. This idea of this is what makes life worth living is, I think, a step in the right direction mm-hmm. away from survival is the meaning of right. life. Right. But still not fully giving us a purpose in life. Mm-hmm. And I think I think there's almost a nod to that. And I don't know whether it's intentional or unintentional. I'd be interested to talk to the writers and directors about this. Yeah. With the suicide. Right. Of was that just meant to be at face value just the the oppression of the father caused this right or is there something to it that says you know what maybe this worldview isn't as fully fleshed out you know as yeah as maybe it's made to seem by keating well it's it's a really fascinating question that you bring up because i think that that you do there's a lot of complex elements that i noticed this time that i didn't notice when i was 20 and first watched yeah. it you know i was i was very much um when I first watched it, I was very much like you were. No, 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 no. This time, I knew what was coming, and you could see the steps that led to it, you know, from a whole bunch of different perspectives. But I think that that what you say is, is really pretty fascinating in terms of maybe this worldview isn't all it's cracked up to be, because... When you look at the the romantic poets that, that, that Keating was really focusing on, focusing on, almost all of them died young. Yeah. They, you know, they died. Byron died when he was 33. Uh, Shelley died when he was 32, I think. Um, they just all died very young and very tragically. And that's sort of some of the appeal of these romantic poets. And it's all about 
they wrote so much about these sensations and everything was emotion and everything was experience. So there wasn't a lot of depth to that. It, it had that vibrancy and immediacy and that urgency that these kids felt. But it wasn't leavened by by any sense of perspective. It was all about the here and now. And so because of that, when it's all about the here and now, you see the Neil character, Neil, um, he, it's all about the here and now. Yep. He doesn't understand where Keating does. I mean, Keating even tells him in a meeting that, number one, he needs to talk with his father about this. Right. And number two, he encourages him, if he really loves um, theater as much as he does, to wait until he's an adult. Because when he's, a, when he's legally adult, he can do, he can take the steps that he needs to. Yeah. Neil doesn't see that in that moment. It's all about the here and now. And, and you see that sense where this is what life is, and so I'm going to leave it. And, right. and I think that you do have, even though the movie doesn't go here emotionally, I don't think this is what emotionally the movie wants to leave you with. Mm-mm. But when you watch it with, with kind of <coughs> these thoughts in mind, you can tell that this really is a tragedy. It's not only, it's not a, it is precipitated by his father. It is in a way precipitated by all this wonderful poetry and this this sense of desire. All of that is a part of it. But it's also the product of a 17-year-old boy making a really terrible decision. Right. And I think that that is something that the movie doesn't emphasize enough. Right. No, and and I would agree with that. And that's where, you know, the thing I couldn't stop thinking about as I thought about the way the movie ended, like, because it tried to end very inspirational. Right. Like, that's where I think the director... Which I really still liked. No, still a fantastic ending. Again, it was one of those things where from a filmmaking perspective... I I loved it. I love the final scene of the movie as he walks out and they all start standing up on their desks. Like, from a filmmaking perspective, fantastic. Um, But from this perspective of what is what are we actually talking about here? What is what are we actually imparting here? Right. From a perspective, it troubled me and it actually made me think of another 1980s movie that I have seen. I don't know if you've seen it. Have you seen the movie Ordinary People? I have not seen it. No. So this was a 1980 movie. It was actually directed by Robert Redford, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and it had Mary Donald Tyler Sutherland, Moore. Mary Tyler Moore, a young Timothy Hutton, Judd Hirsch. I actually watched this in a college speech class that I had um, because my speech um, and communications professor at the time was just so impressed by uh, like wanting us to learn the emotions of com- interpersonal communication as we brought it to our speech mm-hmm. giving. And she thought this movie did a pretty good job on an interpersonal level, showing the good and the bad of that. But that all revolves around a teen boy, Timothy Hutton, who is dealing with depression and suicide because he feels guilty over the death of his older brother. Mm. And his mom is bitter and broken over it. And his dad is sort of distant and emotionally, you know, dead, but trying to hold the family together. And the way, like, they're almost polar opposites in that Ordinary People is a very bleak movie Mm -hmm. most of the way through because you're dealing with depression and suicide and death and how we wrestle with that. Whereas this is dealing with life and it's almost like they end on, it's almost like they're polar opposites in that. They're dealing with, for the majority of the movie, life or a lack of life and 
but then they end in very different places yeah. where the wrestling with this death and this guilt and this grief ends up providing a more hopeful, if not still difficult way right, forward. Right. Whereas in Dead Poet Society, it's all hopeful and it's vim and it's vigor and it's passion and it's enthusiasm, but it does not know what to do with this death and yeah. does not provide a way forward yeah. to deal with it. And so that left me feeling a little empty. Yeah, as much as I enjoyed the movie. Yeah, no, and and I think that that's absolutely right. It's it's this is a movie much like its inspirational authors is all predicated on emotion. It works really, really well on an emotional level. Once you start thinking about it, you just notice some problems. You know, not they're not problems that ruin the movie. They're not problems that even negate the movie's inspirational messages and its and its love for what it loves. But it does create some problems, and it, it does, I think, require some, some more critical thinking. Yeah. Um, speaking of critical thinking, we should probably mention a content caveat that I forgot content all caveat about when we, Paul <laughs> when we did this. There is a scene where a little bit of a pornographic magazine is shown for a bit. An old 1950s yeah. like Playboy. Exactly. You know, these, these guys run to the cave. They flip it open. And the and you see the head and you you see the title and you know what's coming so right. just hit that little skip button yep when it happens and you'll be right past it exactly it's quick and it's brief and yep has some language as well all that kind of stuff but but for the most part it's it's besides those few moments it's relatively clean would you say oh yeah. Yeah, outside of, you know, it's rated PG because mm-hmm. it came out the year that the PG-13 rating finally, like, first was used on an Indiana Jones mm-hmm. movie. Or I think I, I don't, actually, I think we fa- figured out that it wasn't first used by an Indiana, for an Indiana Jones movie. It was just inspired Correct. to be created by Indiana Jones. Um, but this one should have gotten a PG-13 because of that particular scene. Correct. Um but and some of the but otherwise it is a PG. Yeah, it, it, some of the thematic elements obviously are going to be difficult to deal right. with. Though back in the eighties, they wouldn't give. No, they wouldn't give you a PG thirteen for thematic. Eighties, it was go go go. It, it was, was like thematic elements. That's life. Let's go. <laughs> exactly. That's exactly right. <laughs> Let's do this. Thing. We were tougher back then, Jake. Okay. Tougher. Yeah. Well, I don't know about that, but maybe, maybe so. All right. It's a different level of toughness. So, Jake, what would you rate this movie? You know what. Uh, when all is said and done, I liked the whole more than all the sum of the parts. And so I'm going to say that I, I'm going to give it a solid, uh, from a movie perspective, just solely like, I'm going to give it an eight, Ooh. eight out of 10. Wow. It is, very nice. it is well made. It's gripping. It draws you in. You really connect with these characters. Um, you know, maybe it's because I was a teenage boy. Maybe it's because I'm particularly interested in in literature and have been since I was a young kid. But this was a fun, gripping, compelling movie. So yeah, yeah I was I was all in on it. As I said, you know, so like, no, 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 no. <laughs> Darn it. What about you, Paul? Upon like, what would you? What did you rate it when you saw it? I mean, just numbers wise, because you told us emotionally. When you first saw it, and then what would you rate it now? When I first saw it, this would have probably been one of my favorite movies that I had seen. Um, I, I would have probably given it a nine, honestly. Yeah. Um, I think in retrospect, I think I would probably give it maybe a seven point five. Um, I think 
again, it was still a really nice movie with a really fantastic performance by by Robin Williams, and a lot of things resonated with me. But but I think that that giving it a little bit more thought, it worked on one level and not as well in another. So seven point five. Yeah, there you have it. Uh, so what did you guys think? If you happened to watch along with us, or if you paused the podcast went and watched it and came back to listen or if you've seen it before and you're just trading on nostalgia right now (laughs) hit us up on the twitter i'm at jake underscore roberson i'm at ac paul and now it's time to pick off of uh paul's oh yeah list for our next episode um so paul remaining on your backlist um are are two very different movies we have one from uh 1969 your, My birth year. your birth year called the the original Italian Job, um, and the other one is a '90s movie, and uh, late '90s, and it's Saving Private Ryan. Whew. Two very different movies. Um, you know, Paul, I don't. I, I've I've been thinking about which one to assign for our next show, <laughs> and there's a lot of factors. You know, we've been we've been kind of doing a lot of oldies recently. You know, we did. Uh, we but well everything's old to you, Jake. Everything's old to me, but we've been kind of moving See, forward. For me, in Dead time. Poet Society is almost brand new. We did uh, we did Seven Samurai, and then we did um, To Kill a Mockingbird. So we did fifties, we did sixties, and then we skipped the seventies and jumped into the eighties with Dead Poet Society. We could jump back to like late sixties, seventies, but also we've been doing a lot of. We've been also been kind of dabbling in some pretty heavy stuff yes you know seven samurai was heavy in its own way to kill a mockingbird more so and you know dead poet society as we talked about was dealt with suicide which is a very heavy topic and so i don't want to leave us on a bad note at the end of the backlist <laughs> so i'm gonna assign saving private ryan <laughs> It's my roundabout way of saying, Paul, we're going to watch Saving Private Ryan. All right. So, oh, and this, great. I'm fascinated not only to hear what you think watching this for the first time, now two decades after it's been released. So let that sink in. Oh, my goodness. But also for me, because I know when I first watched this movie, I was at a very different place as a human being with my worldview, my perspective on history and politics and religion and faith and all of that. So I'm very fascinated now, about 10 years later, to watch it again and see what I think of Saving Private Ryan. Well, and that is really the interesting thing. And I think that that this talk about Dead Poets Society has really proven that to me, is how much you change as a person and how much that impacts what you get from a movie, you know? So it will be an interesting discussion for sure. All right. So content caveat. Oh, a huge one, I think. (laughs) With Jake Roberson for Saving Private Ryan. This is an incredibly visceral movie. Uh, there's it, there's just no way around it. Well, I've you know, heard that the opening 15 minutes is about one of the most grotesque and, and realistic right. depictions of war yeah. in history. It's one of those where, you know, as legend has it, and I'm sure the legend grows over time, but it's the type of movie that when, um, oh gosh, why am I, when uh, Spielberg screened it yeah. to veterans that of the time that they're like, I could, many of them couldn't even watch it because of how, you know, how real it felt to them. Right. And so this is a violent movie. This is a dark, 
movie it's a dark time um and so you gotta you gotta know that going in maybe you already did but if you didn't now you've been warned all right uh so there you go so we'll we'll lighten it up on the next ones we got <laughs> we got we got some lighter ones coming maybe but maybe i don't know we haven't seen them so we'll go, or at least i haven't seen them we'll go seventh seal <laughs> seventh seal <laughs> all right but now it's time to move on to something less heavy and that is a rank geek segment Welcome inside Rank Geeks, where a bunch of smelly nerds put things in numerical order. This time it's the top three writers who have influenced us. So, Paul, without any further ado. Because we really don't have time for any ado. Because Paul hates ado. No ado for me. It's the worst. And this is a prime point of ado <laughs> yeah. that Paul hates. Who's number three on your list of writers who have influenced right. you? Despite my hate of ado, I have to set this up for a little bit. When I, was, when I was creating this list, it felt a little like at the beginning of Dead Poet Society, mm-hmm. you, you have a lot of bad talk about this guy named Dr. Pritchard who ranks poetry based on you know right. their message and their... He tries to do it scientifically almost. Yeah. yeah. As I was doing this, I found myself actually ranking that because see, on oh, one hand, Paul. you've got... Paul. Well, you've got You've got – there are lots of really inspiring writers who might not be, you know, as as good language craftsmen. Yeah, but it's about inspiring you. It's not about their language craftsmanship. But it is sort of because that's sort of – anyway. Anyway, if I was that's trying – You know what? If their craftsmanship is what inspires you, Paul, you don't have to – You don't have to do. get into my convention of uh, thinking. Enough ado. So – I am going to throw out a guy who I've already mentioned in this podcast, Charles Dickens. Dickens. He was the guy who – he has such a feel for language. I own – I was looking at my, my library at home. I've got two full shelves full of Dickens books, and, and I think that his use of language and his storytelling ability really influenced my path in college and got me really to not only love my own writing but love far more well because i mean when you're in college high school and college you get i mean you just think i "Ah." loved my writing (laughs) that was kind of the case in high school and then i read dickens and i thought oh you know i'm not that good this guy is good, and so he sort of influenced me, and, and I still love reading his stuff. And so my, number three on my list is Charles Dickens. Charles Dickens, yeah. No, to your point, it's, it's, it was really tough to put together this list because there's writers that stick with you. There's writers that shock you. There's writers who in, you know, right. inspire you, which yeah. we're talking about here. Yeah, there are 20 Inspire you to do different so things. Inspire you to be a better person or just inspire you to enjoy life. So yeah. That this list could have gone many different ways, and it did go many different ways for me. It ultimately ended up being the ones I came back to time and time and time again, not only to their books, but like to reference their books. Not right. only did I did I reference them all the time, I came back to them all the time. So that's what it was for me. Number three on my list, and this is going to shock Paul for his dumb stereotypical view of me. <laughs> so get ready to be blasted here, Paul. Number three on my list is none other than Irma Bombeck. Ooh. Wow. What's up? That, didn't see that one coming, did I didn't you? see that coming. That's that's really hilarious, actually. How, have you read much Irma Bombay? I have. Yeah. I actually, 
you know, ironically, now that you mention her, she could have made my list too because she was the first person who I started. I really wanted to be like a funny newspaper columnist yeah. before Dave Barry came along. Um, Irma Bombeck. She short form, her and then her ability to put the, her short form stuff into books was. Yeah. You know, maybe she had a really good publisher, but she was just genius. I she mean, was genius. Like her ability to describe family life, even from a young age, even though we were from vastly different generations. Like she was, yeah. could have been my grandmother, possibly even my great grandmother. I read her stuff as a child and was like, it made me feel better about my own family and laugh and feel like it was okay and the chaos wasn't the worst thing ever and it helped me have perspective even in the midst of the chaos that I had. And I still go back to it. That's hilarious. And I, I, I turned my wife onto her. Yeah. And so there you go, Irma Bombeck. I've read, over a ha- I've read well over a half dozen of her books Wow. and her articles and things like that. Just brilliant. So there you go. Number three for me, Irma Bombeck. All right, number two. For Number me. two for Paul. G.K. Chesterton. Good old G.K. Yeah, I you think reference I, him a lot. I reference him maybe almost every podcast. And I think that the part of it is because he is a little like Irma Bombeck in a sense. And he is a lot like um, some, of these, some of these poets who were in Dead Poet Society in that he made me think about life and of faith and of imagination and of story in new and different ways. I mean, he is... He is very clever. He is very entertaining. He wrote around the turn of the century, was friends with all of the leading intellectuals and literary giants of the day, even though they all passionately disagreed with almost everything that he thought. Um, and yet he was able to, to, to remain on, on civil terms with them all. He loved them all, and they all loved him. And so I think because of that, um, not only because of his writing, and if you haven't read Chesterton, dive into orthodoxy it's a great book um that's probably where i would begin if you wanted to read some of his very very strange fiction the man who is thursday is very very strange but beautiful in its own way chesterton rocks yeah number two for me is uh, not going to come as a surprise to paul though he may protest with it being on this list number two for me is none other than bill watterson (laughs) <laughs> I protest. I protest. You shouldn't, though. You shouldn't, though. He, yes, he's a comic strip, you know, artist. That's maybe how we would define him. But I think that's a box that neither Bill nor any of us should want him to be in. Because when you read Calvin and Hobbes, part of the brilliance of Calvin and Hobbes is, of course, his colorful artistry. You can't get away from that. But what makes it stick has always been the writing. Beautiful, beautiful imagery is great. Imaginative imagery is great. And he has, Watterson had the ability to write emotion, to write action without saying a word. Or with filling an entire page of his colorful imaginative script with words. The way he married, you know... Calvin and Hobbes. I mean, he was, this was theology. This was politics. This was life. The way he, he used these strips to deal with death, with grief, with coming of age, with parenthood, with childhood in ways that resonated with everyone almost. And 
I, I think we have to admit that Bill Watterson may be one of the greatest writers of his generation. That is such a lie. And that he is hit a it. lie. He hit no, it that in is, a comic strip. No, 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 no. He is he brilliant. Is, he is brilliant, but he is a comic strip writer. He is, he is a... It's a writer. No, no, he, he, is, he is a, a writer, writer, but it's a totally different medium. I, I, I rejected. I reject him. <laughs> I just, but he is. Uh, I totally give it to you that he is brilliant. He don't is, be the old guy. But you know what? Poets Society. Honestly, <laughs> writing honestly, is writing is at, writing. We should actually do a whole podcast on comic strips because I am a comic strip. I know you geek. are. He wouldn't even rank in the top three of comic strip That's writers. That's BS. Not he even there. He is one of he the is, best writers. His skill is, both in writing, he is a really wonderful writer, but his artistry is beautiful. And I think it's the marrying of the two that really works. My favorite. Well, for sure. But but it's not the same as, as this hardcore literature. It's not the same. I'm not but none of these are all are all the same. Uh, no. Irma Bombeck is not the same. No, but uh, she wrote newspaper columns and you could you could try to you could try to say, oh, that disqualifies her because it was a different medium. Totally disqualifies The medium her. is no, the no. message, and Watterson <laughs> is, is a and master. And we're not talking about this message. Yes, we are. Or, no, we're not talking about this We're medium. talking about their writers, See, and he was a master of writing in his medium. Irma was a master of writing in her medium. Correct. They're writing across mediums. I would, I would be okay with you putting a TV writer on this list. See, and here's the thing. I could have put TV writers on. I could have put, I could have put lyric writers on here. I could have put movie writers, all those types of people, because they're all, they have some great writing abilities. But we are talking about the printed word and the printed word only here. Uh, Yeah, so he qualifies. It's literally printed. <laughs> it's literally printed. But you have this element of no, artistry. You're wrong. We have we have you're no wrong. we have no more ado. All right, no who's your number ado. one? Oh my goodness. I just gotta share my favorite Calvin and Hobbes strip. Calvin's hammering nails into this this coffee table. His mom comes by and says, What are you doing? Calvin looks at the table and turns to her and says, Is that a trick question? <laughs> All right. Anyway, brilliant. <laughs> it, is, it, it is brilliant. No, it is brilliant. I'm not writing. denying that's no, writing. No, 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 that's no. a skill. It, that it is totally a is a ri- skill. No, it's a writing skill. It, it is a writing skill. But you're talking about other medium here that is meshed in, you're, and you can't separate you his can. writing. Like if you watched, if you had, if you had Watterson write a book. Are you telling me? I'm not, but that that's you not the be, point. Not the point. No, it totally is. Now you got to talk about your number one. Number one. <laughs> number one. This was really tricky, and I don't know if this is really my number one, but it was my number one last night. <laughs> Annie Dillard. Annie Dillard. Annie Dillard is a brilliant essayist. Um, whoa, whoa, whoa! She doesn't write books. She does. Get out books. of this place. She, Get out of here. You're done. We're finished. We're she does our papers books. in the air. No, no, she totally writes books. She won a Pulitzer, which Watterson, I don't think, has re- gotten a Pulitzer for his books. He should have. Yeah, I've got the complete Calvin and Hobbes. That should get a Pulitzer. Continue with Dillard. <laughs> so Dillard, she's an essayist. She won the Pulitzer Prize in 1974 for a book called Pilgrim at Tinker Creek. She is amazing because she deals with science. She's she's very much a scientist, and in, in, in sort of the the thread of Thoreau, who is mentioned a great deal in, in Dead Poet Society, she observes nature, and she talks about these, these horrific things that happen in nature, these beautiful things that happen in nature. She's all also a deeply faithful woman and because of that I really I really am struck by how she's able to mesh this beautiful literary technique 
incredibly dense, incredibly... Um, you unpack every single word in her works, and it's just incredible. And let me... I just have to read something that, that'll blow Watterson away. This is from the very ending part of her Pilgrim at Tinker Creek. Um, I think that the dying prey... At the last, not please, but thank you. As a guest thanks the host at the door. Falling from airplanes, the people are crying, thank you, thank you. Divinity is not playful, and the universe was not made in jest, but in solemn, incomprehensible earnest, by a power that is unfathomably secret and holy and fleet. There is nothing to be done about it but ignore it or see. And then you walk fearlessly, eating what you must, growing wherever you can, like the monk on the road who knows precisely how vulnerable he is. That's fantastic. I read that on page 77 of The Complete Calvin and Hobbes. <laughs> <laughs> it's gorgeous. I love oh, it. Oh, my goodness. I agree with you. All right. That's, that's great. Number one, Jim. Number one for me. This this was somebody I didn't want to include on the list because it felt cliche. It did. Uh, but I had to when I realized how many of his works I'd read, how many of his works I came back to consistently, and how so many parts of his work still inspire me in what I do and think today. And so number one on my list for me is C.S. Lewis. Of course, Lewis. Of course, The Chronicles of Narnia. But beyond that, The Great Divorce, The Problem of Pain, The Screwtape Letters, his sci-fi trilogy. Have you ever, ever read his not, sci-fi trilogy? No. Avs the Silent Planet, Paralandra, That Hideous Strength. C.S. Lewis was a talented writer who could span, he could write practically, he could write spiritually, he could write philosophically, and he could write fictionally. I mean, he, and still to this day, my favorite moment in any book I've ever read is from the Chronicles of Narnia, a children's story. And when, and we've talked about it on here before in The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, so I won't elaborate any further than to say that there's, when I, as much as I wanted to put somebody more, low key on the list so I wouldn't seem like I was just jumping on the bandwagon I still think about the great divorce I still think about the screw tape letters I still think about the chronicles of Narnia and the problem of pain like all these things that I've read mere Christianity all those things still influence and inspire me and in how I how I see God and how I want to see God um, like and how it because that seems like the God of the scriptures that I have not been able to see because of the God of my modern life that's been sold to me. And so for me, it's C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis is a fantastic choice, much better than your number two. <laughs> uh, and, and, you know, there's, there's a moment in almost every single Chronicles of Narnia that I think is just beautiful. Like, it stops me cold. And, yeah. and I think that, that he encapsulates so much theological truth and beauty in in just a couple of pages that that is remarkable i mean i just uh i just reread the great divorce which is an impressive book all on its own and i I think that that he he has an ability to speak um in a way that few others do i i actually think in some ways chesterton may do it even a little bit better yeah but it's it's really it's really amazing. Yeah. Both of them. So. And that's not to mention all my honorable mentions. Oh, my goodness. Mark Twain, Tolkien, Henry Nouwen. Tony Morrison. Brother Lawrence. Philip K. Dick. Masanobu Fukuoka. Shout out to that guy. Yeah, He's no. dead. 
Uh, Dostoevsky, Robert Penn Warren. We Douglas Adams, Ray Bradbury. Let me. Ray Bradbury is the one who narrowly missed the list. He's written probably my favorite short story ever. So I just wanted to give him a shout out and say if you need to read a great short story, go read The Very Gentle Murders. It's in a collection called Quicker Than the Eye by Ray Bradbury. Hmm. It is twisted, but he uses language artfully, and it's hilarious. Vonnegut. There you go. All right. Enough of that. We've got to do a whole... Now it's time for the most least important thing. Here we are in the most least important thing, the way we love to wrap up every single show, or at least I do. <laughs> Telling you about whatever we want. I just love wrapping big up every and small, single show. Big and small and big. Paul, what do you got for us? All right. I'm going to go really least here. Um, I Sometimes I get a little geeky, Jake. Yeah. As you may know. Geek and, out. Yeah. Like even more geeky than I often show here where I start crunching numbers just for fun. So you're lying to us here. <laughs> yeah. You know, there's there's an element of me. Let that, your geek flag fly. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's really disturbing. So one day I was sort of wondering, you know what? Marvel Cinematic Universe has made a pretty fantastic run. Pixar has had a pretty fantastic run. Which one has really done better? Mm. So I started crunching some numbers. Crunch those numbers. So You crunch these numbers all by yourself? I crunch these numbers all by myself. This yep. is totally original. So I looked at box office numbers. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Who wins between Marvel and Pixar? Like, in terms of money made or money netted? In money made. Money made? Money made. I gotta, I gotta say it's uh, Marvel. You would be right. $6.63 billion the, the cinematic universe has made, which is more, actually, than the gross domestic product of, of Mozambique. There you just go. Just to let you know. Yeah. What's so, Pixar at? Pixar is at a not-too-shabby $4.94 billion. Yeah. So, now in terms of critical success and i'm judging from from box office mojo which one would be better uh pixar box wait you're saying like critical like reviews yeah I, i'm yeah, sorry yeah. rotten tomatoes like a oh, rotten tomatoes like average freshness correct, correct. I, it's gotta be pixar you are correct yeah 90 well okay so let me see if i can read this real quick here um Avengers movies have done incredibly well, and Ant-Man and the Wasp only brings up this average. 83.8% approval rating on Rotten Tomatoes. As an average, that's insane. It's insane. But then you look at Pixar, it's 90%. I mean, way more insane. As an average. Most people would pray to get 190 in their lifetime Yeah, Rotten Tomatoes. Yeah, I have never gotten 90% on Rotten Tomatoes. I know that much. And a lot of Best Picture winners, winners have not gotten 90%. They have three movies that have gotten 100%. That's that's where it's at, man. I actually got to do a workshop with a guy that was early days of Pixar, writer, storyteller, and spent 20 years with them. And he's the real deal when it comes to the creative stuff, man. Interesting. Master so, Lund. It was anyway, fantastic. that's my most least important thing. Well, that you know what? Mine is even least than that. <laughs> and uh, that's to let you guys know, in case you hadn't heard, that Justin Bieber is becoming a Baldwin son. What? Justin Bieber. Not a Baldwin brother. A Baldwin son. He just got engaged 
So you may have heard about what? that. What? I didn't even hear about that. He got engaged to a gal named Haley Baldwin, who just so happens to be the daughter of Stephen Baldwin. Oh, so, my So not only goodness. is Justin Bieber becoming a Baldwin son, he's becoming like the Baldwin son of the most conservative Baldwin brother. <laughs> That's, that's really interesting. So I'm guessing that that he and Selena Gomez are really done. This they're time. for like I mean, there's the wedding ceremony hasn't happened yet, so you never know. Tolkien's wife was engaged to another man at one point, so you just never you know. never know. But as of this point, Justin Bieber is hurtling toward becoming a Baldwin son. Oh, those believers would I be hope he so changed, sad. You know what? I hope Justin gets really progressive and changes his name to Justin Baldwin. Because <laughs> that would be hilarious. That would be hilarious. Yeah. And or maybe he could drop his first name and just go as Bieber Baldwin. <laughs> Bieber Baldwin. That will be a tongue twister to warm up theater kids' voices for years to come. Bieber or, Baldwin. Bieber, yeah, Baldwin. They, Bieber Baldwin. Bieber Baldwin. I can't even say it. It's a tongue twister. Ah, get out of here. Bieber could, Baldwin. Yeah. Or they could have a child. Baldwin Bieber. What if it was Becca Bieber Baldwin? <laughs> Becca that Bieber would, Baldwin. That would be awesome. Or I'm rooting Beckham, for this relationship. Like Beckham Bieber Baldwin. Beckham Bieber Baldwin. Beckham Bieber Baldwin. I hope this happens. I, think, I really want I, this to happen. I Come think, on, Justin. <laughs> I think this counts as an ado, don't you? This is a do. And so without further ado, we'll close this podcast. <laughs> and bid you a do. Hit us up on the Twitter. I'm at Jake underscore Roberson. I'm at AC Paul. We'll catch you guys on the flip side. Bye.